The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. One of the things that characterizes humanity is that humans have a longing for God. Humans have a longing for God. Jonathan Haidt, in his book, The Happiness Hypothesis, wrote this, Just as plants need sun, water, and good soil to thrive, people need love, work, and a connection to something larger. Perhaps even more explicitly, in 2009, the actor Shia LaBeouf was interviewed by Parade Magazine. And here's what Shia said. Most actors on most days don't think they're worthy. I have no idea where this insecurity comes from, but it's a God-sized hole. If I knew, I'd fill it, and I'd be on my way. All humans have a longing for God. It may manifest itself variously. We may express it variously. We may suppress it and try to deny it, but it won't change the fact that we were created to walk with God. Did you know that's actually how it began? God spoke the world into existence, and God walked in the Garden of Eden, the first sanctuary, in the cool of the day, in the evening, with Adam and Eve. Humanity's longing for God goes back to how God originally made the world to be. But then, humanity, and you and I, in our first ancestor, rejected God, spurned Him, and chose to separate ourselves from Him. And so Adam and Eve were expelled from the Garden of Eden. Paradise was lost. And on the fringe of the Garden of Eden were cherubim, which are angelic beings, holding flaming swords to show us that our access and intimacy with God has been lost. But our longing has remained. So throughout human history, many things were done to create opportunity for a fleeting sanctuary or a temporary divine encounter. The patriarchs had the altars. The altars were places for fleeting sanctuary or divine encounter. But then in Exodus 25, God introduced something known as the tabernacle, which would later be called the temple, which is actually what I'm reading about in First Kings in my own Bible reading. Now, it's very important to understand this. God called the tabernacle a tent of meeting between God and man, a temporary sanctuary, a fleeting encounter, But the very presence of the temple made this clear, that our sin has barred us from the audience of God we once had, and God's presence is now layered, restricted, or mediated. Did you know that if you went to the temple, on the curtain that kept the Holy of Holies distinct were etched in scarlet the cherubim, the cherubim with the flaming swords, the same ones that kept you out of the Garden of Eden, kept us from the Holy of Holies. And what was next to the Ark of the Covenant inside the holy place? Two 15-feet golden cherubim to make abundantly clear that God's presence that we long for can now not be accessed because of our sin. We have put up a wall of separation with our God. This veil with the cherubim 
reminds us that our sin has separated us from the access with God we crave and lost. And in fact, now access with God can only be layered, restricted, or mediated. Now the temple, the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, could only be accessed into the holy of holies, the holy place, once a year. And that was by the high priest. The high priest would enter this access on the day of atonement. But he could only access it after very carefully carrying out a sacrifice showing that he and the people are sinners and cannot approach God without acknowledging such sin and recognizing that it needs to be dealt with. All right, so heaven and earth had a bridge, but that bridge was temporary and restricted and it was known as the temple. But in today's text, we're going to see how that purpose is fulfilled. So the title of today's sermon is Jesus, the Temple of God. Now, our brother read John 2 for us, but that's just to help us continue in Matthew. So can you turn to Matthew chapter 26? We're going to continue as we've been going through the gospel of Matthew for a good year, year plus now. And today we come to the crucifixion account on a day that we have communion. And here we see in particular what I want us to focus on. There's a clear emphasis in the crucifixion account on the temple. And we're going to look at a large amount of text, but it's really a very simple and clear theme. Jesus, the temple of God. So please turn to Matthew 26. If you're not there, join me please in verse 57. And this is a mock trial of mock justice where Jesus is before the Jewish religious leaders. So look in verse 57 of Matthew 26. There we read, Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas the high priest where the scribes and elders had gathered. I won't have us turn to all these passages for time's sake, but at the beginning of Matthew 26, we read that the Jewish religious leaders had conspired to murder Jesus. And all they needed was a private space where they could get him without the crowd seeing that. And they found such a compatriot in evil in Judas. Just don't miss, though, that the driving force of murdering Jesus are the Jewish religious leaders. They're passionate about destroying him to protect their own power and position. So Caiaphas is not now leading him to a fair trial. Verse 58, And Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest, and going inside he sat with the guards to see the end. Remember at this point in the gospel, Peter has protested loudly how committed and loyal he is to Jesus. Jesus told Peter that he would deny him. He hasn't yet denied him, but notice he's following at a safe distance, letting you know what's about to happen. The denial that he does in fact fulfill is in the following passage, but you can already tell he's on his way to denial. There surely is a good lesson for us here that if we only feel safe from a distance, we should be concerned about our understanding of our relationship with God. Verse 59, now the chief priests and the whole council, this is a great phrase, were seeking false testimony against Jesus. Does that sound like a fair trial? (laughs) They don't want any true testimony. We only want false testimony, and we want it to be against Jesus for this purpose, the text tells us, that they might put him to death. So the very purpose of the trial is to get people to lie 
But the lies have to be believable enough that they can be used so that they can murder Jesus. That is the purpose of the trial. That's what makes verse 60 so amazing. But they found none. These are people that have been wanting to murder Jesus for years of public ministry. And they are trying to get false witnesses and still cannot find any stickable claim that will have a corroboration upon which they can murder him. Think of people in the public eye today. Jesus has been in the public eye for years and they can find nothing. I think most of us would have to admit anyone in the public eye running for office today, it might take five minutes and a Wi-Fi connection. (laughs) Jesus, there is nothing that can be found. This is so important because Isaiah 53 says he is the spotless lamb and even his most vociferous enemies can find nothing. Notice the verse continues. They found none, though many false witnesses came forward. Now, in the law that God gave the Jews, you had to have a corroborating witness, which is why they can't get anybody to corroborate. But notice the thing they do find that sticks. So verse 60 continues, at last, so after a long time, two came forward, and you need two. And here's what they caught Jesus on. This will be the grounds upon which they'll murder him. Verse 61, and said, this man, Jesus said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. So the only thing they could get two people to corroborate on is that Jesus said that he could destroy the temple and rebuild it, which he did in fact say. The Jewish religious leaders have now found all they need because in their mind, the temple is a place of religious ritual. But surely you remember from what I just told us in the introduction. What is the temple actually? What did God call it? The meeting place between God and man. Now the Jewish religious leaders have totally lost sight of what the temple's purpose was. And so in their mind, Jesus is desecrating a holy place. Thus they have not even understood what the purpose and point of the temple ever was. But it's enough for them to murder him. And so in verse 62, the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? Verse 63, but Jesus remained silent as a lamb led to the slaughterers is. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Notice at least the high priest understands that the Christ is the Son of God. But he wants to know what Jesus' answer will be. Of course, we know his motive is murder, so it's not like he's interested in the truth. Verse 64, Jesus said to him, you have said so. This is actually one of his clearest acknowledgments. Yes, you're correct. I am the Christ. I am the Son of God. But I'm more than what you think when you hear that phrase. Which is why he continues, but I tell you from now on, you will see the son of man. This is his favorite illusion. Daniel 7's ancient of days who will rule a kingdom forever. You will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus is affirming, yes, I am the Christ. I am the son of God. But when you hear that phrase, you think of just political earthly rule. I'm much more than that. I'm the Christ, the son of God, who's the son of man, the eternal king and king of kings. But I haven't come to rule this world today. I've come to die for this world today. The next time I come back, I come on the clouds and I come in power. 
and that will be the only way that I will be seen again. But notice their reaction as verse 66 continues. They answered, oh sorry, verse 65, let's go back up to there. Then the high priest tore his robes, which was an act of sacrilege, and said, he has uttered blasphemy. He's accusing him of blasphemy on the basis of him affirming himself as God, as the Messiah. What further witnesses do we need? Which at this point they've exhausted a lot. You've now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, this is the Jewish religious leaders answering, he, Jesus, deserves death. And then their immediate treatment of him makes clear that their motive was always ill. So verse 67, then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him saying, prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? The verses that follow speak of Peter's denial. Judas is hanging, things that we looked at a couple Sundays ago. And then Pilate's trial, which we'll look at, Lord willing, next Sunday. But here we want to trace in particular this theme, Jesus, the temple of God. Now here's the question that I immediately had the first time I went through this passage. If Jesus didn't want to be crucified, there are many other metaphors he could have used more easily. He could have said something like, if you destroy this fig tree, I'll rebuild it in three days. If you destroy this rock, I'll rebuild it in three days. If you destroy this house, I will rebuild it in three days. But he chooses the temple, the very thing the Jewish religious leaders drool over with wrong perspective. Why would he choose something so charged, something that if you say you'll destroy that, surely they'll murder you for that? There's two answers. The first reason Jesus said that he was the temple is because he is. (laughs) He really is the temple. He is the meeting place between God and man. It's just the Jewish people forgot what the temple really was. There's a second reason Jesus is unashamed to say that he's the temple, and it's because he is willingly dying. He's telling the truth when he says that he is going to destroy the temple of his own body. He's also telling the truth at just the right time because he's orchestrating his own voluntary death. Now, if you've been reading through Matthew carefully or if you've been with us on Sunday mornings, you shouldn't be very surprised. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus has an interchange with the Jewish religious leaders. And in verse 6, Jesus says this in Matthew 12, verse 6, something greater than the temple is here. He's let them know the fulfillment has come because he's always told them the truth. There's only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So here, Jesus tells the truth, but the temple emphasis continues. And would you now please flip a page to Matthew 27? And we're going to pick up in verse 32. And here in Jesus' crucifixion, we're going to see that this same theme returns, that Jesus called himself the temple. In fact, at this passage, it's a point of mockery. So Matthew 27 now, in verse 32. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, and they compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. 
And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him which read, This is Jesus, King of the Jews. The charge is meant to make a mockery of him. Of course, we know he really is the true king. But something else that's important thematically is remember it's King Solomon who built the temple. And there's always been a relationship between the king and the temple. So now verse 38. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right hand and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him. Just to help you set the scene in your mind, there's a section of time after Jesus has been crucified, but before he finally dies, which is also before sundown. So it's still a time that people can be out on the Sabbath. And that's where passerbys would come. So if in your mind you can picture the crosses up on a hill and people essentially for sport walking by and hurling insults and comments, that's the scene that we're in now. But the insult they hurl is very interesting. Notice verse 40. They say, you who would destroy the temple? Notice they bring up the charge upon which he was murdered and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. Notice their logic is, if you think you could destroy this big, beautiful temple and rebuild it, then you would prove it if you had the power to come down from the cross. How wrong they are. Notice verse 41. Look who joins in to the same insult. So also the chief priests with the scribes and the elders mocked him with the same words, saying he saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come now down from the cross and then we'll believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I'm the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Their mockery all centers on this point. Who does this guy think he is that he could destroy the temple and rebuild it? Thus, they've missed what's happening right in front of them. He is destroying the temple and he will rebuild it. And he has done so by choosing not to come down from the cross. Now that same factor continues. Pick up in verse 45 of the same chapter, Matthew 27. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. They just misheard, misunderstood. Verse 48. One of them took at once and ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. So here at this moment where Jesus is experiencing separation from God the Father in a way that admittedly is beyond our finitude to grasp. But that separation we know is caused because he's bearing our sin. So here, this most painful moment, beyond our comprehension, he is again mocked. But notice what happens here in verse 50. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. But then something miraculous happens. Look in verse 51. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. 
the moment Jesus breathes his last, the curtain that separated God from sinful man is ripped in half. How? In Leviticus chapter 4, we read what the high priest was supposed to do when he came to offer atonement for the sacrifices of sinners. He was supposed to dip his finger in blood and sprinkle it seven times in front of the veil. Now, there were two veils in the temple. There was an outer veil that was between the Gentile court and the Jewish court. But the inner veil that separated People from their holy God is the veil where the high priest would sprinkle this blood. But now that veil, the veil that separated unholy humanity from a perfectly holy God is now split in half. Why? Because the temple has been destroyed because the Lamb of God has sacrificed himself as the great high priest. The temple splits Because all that it was pointing to has been fulfilled. But don't miss this morning that the temple splits because God made the overture to bring humanity to himself. In 1987, Ronald Reagan goaded Mr. Gorbachev to tear down that wall. But no one had to goad God to tear down the wall. The wall that we put up because of our own sinful rebellion. God chooses to bear its cost on himself. When his son suffers and breathes his final words, it is finished. At that moment, access to God is opened. See, the great high priest did come, but he came on a cross and the temple is destroyed. But then it's rebuilt because look how the verse continues. Not only was the temple torn down, verse 51, and the earth shook and the rocks were split, but now notice verse 52. The tombs also were open and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Notice they came out of tombs after his resurrection. So the immediate signs of life coming from death are meant to show that that temple that was destroyed is going to be raised up in three days. And the access to God, the meeting place between God and men, is found in Jesus alone. So remember what the chief priests and the scribes and all the robbers said? They said, if he really could destroy the temple and rebuild it. I mean, if he really could do that, he would come down from the cross because if he was the son of God, he would have that kind of power. But someone put the dots together. Look in verse 54. When the centurion, not a Jewish person, and those who were with him, not Jewish people, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and they said, truly, this was the son of God. The very thing over which the Jewish religious leaders mock him is what the Roman centurion observes in him. He is the temple. He is the sacrifice. He is the high priest. He is the son of God. But then, strikingly, the Jewish religious leaders revealed that they always knew what he was talking about. Look in verse 62 of chapter 27. Look down in verse 62. The next day... After the day of preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. 
So they did know what he was talking about the whole time. (laughs) They knew that when he was talking about the temple, he was talking about himself. That's how they know he said he would rise. But still in fear rather than faith, verse 64, they order the tomb to be secured until the third day. Their fear is that his disciples may come. But what happens on the third day? He breaks open the tomb. The temple that has been destroyed is rebuilt. The high priest could only come to the temple once a year to enter the most holy place and only after sprinkling blood seven times. And when he entered, his desire was to get out as quickly as possible lest he die in the presence of a holy God. But Jesus, the great high priest, after he died, sat down at the right hand of God, having accomplished once for all what no other sacrifice could. So that longing that humans have to have an audience with God, to have presence with God, can be satisfied, but it's satisfied in the one place God, who is holy, and humanity, which is unholy, can meet satisfyingly, and that is in Jesus. I heard a story recently of a little boy who was staring at a picture of his father in a frame. His father was away on military duty. And the boy knelt down at the foot of the picture and he started crying. And his mom walked by and said, son, what, what's the matter? And he said, I just wish daddy would come out of the frame. Jesus being the temple is God coming out of the frame but coming out of the frame that is only there because of our sinful rebellion. God breaks open the frame, even though we are the ones who caused it. God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This means that no one is beyond receiving a relationship with God. The access is open to anyone because Jesus has split open the temple. Jesus is the true temple. The meeting place between God and man. But why would anyone be surprised? What did the angel say of him in Matthew 1? He's called Emmanuel because he's God with us. So of course he's the temple. Jesus is the sacrificial lamb. But why would it be surprised? He's called Jesus because he saves his people from their sins. The lamb of God, of course, has come. And he's the great high priest, but no one should be surprised because four times he told his disciples, they will deliver me over to death but I will rise. All right, so why is all of this that happened in Matthew 26 through 27, why is it good news for you and I today? And I want to give three applications to you as to why I think this is such great news for us now. Number one, because Jesus is the true temple, you can enjoy intimate access with God today. Listen to Hebrews 4, verse 14. Since we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession, for we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who has in every respect been tempted, yet without sin. So verse 16 is a command. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and help in our time of need. Because Jesus split the temple veil and because he's the true temple, do you know that changes the way you approach God every day of your life? You should not approach God like a desperate beggar going to a wealthy stranger asking for a big favor. 
You should not approach God like a guilty sinner going to a stern judge asking for leniency. You should not approach God like a servant without rank going to a master without pity asking for a favor without assurance. You should approach God like a child who sits in his father's lap and knows he loves him. And this is only true because the true temple fulfilled what kept us from the holy character of God. It is a sad thing that many who, many people who are Christians pray reluctantly or begrudgingly or half-heartedly when the temple veil has been split. Do we not know what has been opened for us? Why would we not go to God often and tell him everything and do so with confidence that he loves us? Don't you know that access with God was never thought of as immediate? It was never thought of as immediate. It was always thought of as restricted and occasional. But now 1 Corinthians 3 tells us that you are the temple of God and God's spirit dwells in you. Those are the implications of God opening access to us through Jesus. So number one, you can enjoy intimate access with God now. But number two, you can walk with God for eternity. The access we can enjoy with God now will be even greater when it can be experienced face to face. We read in Revelation 24, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, in verse 3, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Don't miss that phrase. Before, the dwelling place of God and man could only be at the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant and the access was restricted. Now it's face to face. Did you know that the Holy of Holies inside the temple was a perfect cube? Do you know what the shape is of the new Jerusalem? A perfect cube. Do you think that's coincidence? It's trying to show us that what we once could never access, we now will live in God and man together. But number three, number one, you can enjoy intimate access with God now. Number two, you can walk with God forever. But now number three, if you grasp a passage like this one today, then the sacrifice of Jesus must both humble us and exalt us. It must both humble us and exalt us. You see, if we understand how holy God is and how unworthy we are to have an audience with him, then we will understand why Jesus had to die. But the fact that Jesus was glad to die and willing to take our place is what not only humbles us, but also exalts us. And if we recognize that what Jesus went through, he went through so that we don't have to, it humbles and exalts us. Elizabeth Barrett Browning wrote an excellent poem called Cowper's Grave. Here are some lines near the end. Yea, once Emmanuel's orphan cry, his universe hath shaken. And went up single, echoless, my God, I am forsaken. It went up from the holy's lips amid his lost creation that of the lost no son 
should use those words of desolation. It's because Jesus said, my God, my God, why am I forsaken, that you'll never have to. But also hear this this morning. If you neglect so great a salvation, what do you think the implications will be? If God did not spare but crushed his own son when his son was bearing our sin, and we spurn that son, what do you expect the implications will be for you? Will they not be righteously wrathful? So don't neglect such a great salvation, one that was purchased for you by the true temple, Jesus Christ. Let's close in prayer together. God, as we have the privilege of partaking of communion this morning, remind us afresh how holy you are and how unworthy we are of access to God. We have no right at all on our own footing to approach the presence of God. We need to not only remove our sandals, so to speak, we need to remove ourselves because it is, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a holy and mighty God. Thus, we must be humbled by who you are and who we are. But we are also able to be exalted because Jesus, the true temple, has taken absolutely everything that separates us from God on his own body and finished it, paying for it, conquering it, and rising victoriously. So Lord, thank you that the curtain that separated us was rent in half. And that open access signifies to us what we can enjoy with God, intimacy, which is staggering of the thought. May that impact our affections and may it impact our approach and posture to our Lord. Help us, Lord, to realize and to actually make use of the incredible access that has been opened to us through Jesus. And Lord, I thank you especially as we're about to take communion that Jesus conquered his final temptation when he was encouraged, urged, and mocked by many to come down from the cross. Thank you that he did not. But he stayed there until the righteous wrath of God was satisfied against my sin and all our sin. And for that, Lord, we forever thank you. In Christ I pray. Amen. You've been listening to Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraleigh.com. That's ebcraleigh.com.